Good morning. We are in our third week and our final week of this series called Meeting Jesus, in which we are looking at stories from the New Testament of people being introduced to Jesus, either by Jesus himself or by someone else. Two weeks ago, we looked at the story of Jesus on his way to Galilee, not going around Samaria as some of the other Jews would do, but walking through Samaria because he had an appointment with a Samaritan woman at a well. Last week, we looked at Philip, one of the early seven deacons of the church, who on his way to Gaza stopped on a desert road to see an Ethiopian eunuch and share the gospel with him. This week, we're looking at the conversion of St. Paul. So let's open in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word. We recognize that your word in the hands of the Holy Spirit is powerful. A powerful vehicle for transformation. And so as we do this, we do not do this lightly. We recognize the power of this moment and we soften our hearts and ready ourselves to hear from you as we open your word. Would you enliven our spiritual imagination open our hearts that we would take this in deeply and allow for your spirit to bring transformation to our hearts. We ask that you would do this in the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Every summer, Margie's family, my wife's family, goes to a beautiful 120-year-old fishing resort in northern Wisconsin. It's called Boyd's. It's one of my favorite places in the world. My daughter Ella, every summer, goes on these hikes and she is looking for monarch caterpillars. She's looking on the bottoms of milkweed plants, looking for these caterpillars and she gathers them up and uh, when she finds a number of them, we watch them eat milkweed and then create chrysalises and then amazingly become butterflies. She never gets tired of it. I never get tired of it. It's an amazing process of metamorphosis. I mean, how does this happen, right? How does this fat, slow, lumbering, chowing caterpillar transform into this light, flitting, agile, beautiful creature? I mean, it is wholly transformed from one thing to a foundationally different thing, something completely different. The whole process is filled with beauty. Even the in-between stage with the chrysalis, it's this gorgeous little sculpture. Well, today we're looking at a story of transformation that is no less astounding. We're looking at the story the account of the Apostle Paul's conversion. How does Saul of Tarsus, the most feared and violent opponent of the early church, on the road to Damascus where he is traveling to arrest anyone proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, anyone who claims that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, he's going to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem to be imprisoned and punished. How does this man transform into the most powerful, articulate voice for the early Christian church? How does this man become 
one of the disciples that is used most powerfully to establish the early church. Well, as we begin, let's read the account of Paul meeting Jesus in Acts chapter 9. As I read, I'm going to read just a few verses earlier to set the stage. In Acts chapter 7, the, the end of Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of Acts chapter 8, we see Stephen, also one of the early deacons of the church, and a powerful voice for Christ, being martyred, being stoned. In chapter 7, verse 58, it says, They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, Stephen. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. A few verses later, it says Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Now let's begin in chapter 9, verse 1, where we see our story of the conversion of Paul. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats, murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went out to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Then men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on State, on Straight Street, on, not State Street, this was not in Chicago. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call in your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, 
who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, let's start to unpack this story by beginning to take a look at who Paul was. First of all, prior to his conversion, Paul was known, as you can see in the passage, as Saul. His name was changed from Saul to Paul. Now, the Bible is full of name changes. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob becomes Israel. Simon becomes Peter. And each of these represents a significant story of transformation. Of course, the Bible is full of stories of transformation. This is what God is up to in the world. This is his work. As he redeems the world, as he brings redemption, a part of that work is individual transformed lives. And we see that time and time again in the scripture. So Paul was Saul. Now, what we know about Saul's education is that it was the highest possible level at the time. He studied with Gamaliel, who was a, a noted rabbi at the time, the most famous and sought after rabbi, the he head of the Sanhedrin at the time, a gathering of leaders among the Jewish faith. Saul was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a learned Jewish sect known as experts in the law. Not only was Saul a Pharisee, but among the Pharisees, Saul was a rising star. In Galatians, later on, Paul writes this about his past. He says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So as we just read, we can see that Saul was also a deeply devout Jew. He was, in terms of following the law, righteous. Later on in Philippians, Paul writes this about his past. He says, Circumcised on the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And of course, as we read earlier, Paul was zealous in his defense of Judaism. Zealous to the point of being the most feared and violent opponent of the early church. Now let's take a look at this narrative a little bit more closely. Let's take a look at the story. Saul had received letters from the high priest. Orders to find 
any Christians in Damascus, arrest them, apprehend them, take them to Jerusalem where they would be imprisoned and punished. But it came about on the road to Damascus that suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, from our perspective, what Paul was about to do in Damascus was unthinkable. It was horrific. It was evil. It was terrible. So we assume that when this light comes from heaven and he falls to the ground, he must have been thinking, oh, I'm busted. <laughs> he must have fallen to the ground suddenly exposed and filled with guilt. But in fact, from Saul's perspective, he was acting righteously. He's a defender of the Jewish faith. Saul must have had in the back of his mind stories from the Old Testament, stories like Elijah and the judgment that came upon the prophets of Baal. To Saul, these Christians, these followers of Jesus were the new prophets of Baal. And they needed to be stopped at all cost, whatever it took. N.T. Wright, in his biography on the Apostle Paul, makes this point that Saul thought he was pleasing God. He was on his way to serve God, not to oppose God. He was on his way to Damascus to serve God, to further the faith. So in that case, Paul would not have been exposed initially by this light from heaven. Remember, Saul's not a secular persecutor of faith. Paul was a man of faith. So Wright actually speculates that it's more likely that he fell to ground in worship and awe, being struck by the glory of God. And that, that Saul, at that moment, actually lifts his eyes longing to catch a glimpse of the God that he has worshipped his whole life. He lifts his eyes and he sees before him Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And stunned, and, and it had to be confused, Paul says, who are you, Lord? persecuting you. Who are you? To which Jesus responds, I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. And in that moment, Paul's whole life, everything that his life was built on, shatters, falls apart. And simultaneously in that moment, there must have been something else happening as well. There must have been taking form in front of him something else. His whole life of study in the scriptures must have been coalescing, coming together in a certain sense in that person that was standing before him. But it's not clear if everything was coming together right away because what does it say? It says that, that Paul arose blind unable to see physically, and more than likely, unable to comprehend what just happened to him. So he's led back into the city of Damascus, and he stays there for three days, not eating or drinking, absolutely stunned. 
But God sets up a divine appointment with a disciple in Damascus by the name of Ananias. He's sent to pray over Saul. And when Ananias lays his hands on Saul, it says in verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight. By the way, this is where the phrase, the scales fell from their eyes, comes from. The Collins English Dictionary describes that phrase. It says that it means when somebody suddenly realizes the truth about something after a long period of not understanding it or being deceived about it. That's where we get this phrase. It's from this very moment. When something like scales fall from, Paul's, from Saul's eyes. And I believe that it's in that moment that everything suddenly makes sense. Because what does he do? There are two things that he does right away. First of all, it says he arose and was baptized. And by, by the way, this is the pattern in the, in the New Testament. This is what we see. People believe and they make a decision to become followers of Jesus. And then immediately they declare that decision to the world through baptism. They immediately confirm that choice that they've made and the new life that they've chosen, the new path that they've chosen through this symbol of baptism. Now, I want to come back to that at a later point, but right now, I just want to focus on this amazing moment of transformation for Saul. What is the second thing that he does? Well, let's take a look again at Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. It says, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on, the, on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Some translations say he confounded the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ. All those who heard him were amazed. And of course they were. They just witnessed one of the most profound transformations in all of human history. What did Ananias say when God asked him to find Paul? He said, Lord, I have heard. <laughs> I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. Ananias had heard about Saul from many sources. In other words, his reputation had preceded him. Everyone in Damascus was expecting a man still breathing threats and murder. And what they saw was a man amazing them with his teaching. What they saw was a man proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, increasing in strength, confounding the Jews that lived in Damascus. And how was he confounding them? By proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Can you imagine the power of seeing this man who everyone thought was coming to arrest 
anyone calling on the name of Jesus, anyone claiming that Jesus is the Christ, and instead they see a man powerfully proclaiming that Jesus is indeed the Christ, that he is the Messiah that they have all been waiting for. This section in chapter 9 closes with verse 31 where it says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in number. And it's no wonder, right? Of course, the church increased in number. They just saw a radically transformed life. The church was growing because it witnessed someone who had been wholly transformed, changed from one thing to another fundamentally different thing. It's not every day that we see a life completely changed. I mean, we are, for the most part, in many ways, the same people we were when we were younger. But God is inviting us into an experience of transformation. He's inviting us to be able to say with the Apostle Paul later, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. God is inviting us into an experience of his life lived through us pouring through us his words, his touch, his healing, his love emanating from our lives. I want to take us back a couple of weeks to the story of Jesus sitting with this Samaritan woman at a well. Because there's something that I was really struck with in that story. When Jesus asks her, where is your husband? And she answers, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. You have no husband because you've had five husbands. And the man that you're living with right now is not your husband. This must have been a similar kind of moment for that woman. As Paul lifting his eyes to catch a glimpse of the glory of God and seeing standing before him, Jesus of Nazareth. Suddenly, for that Samaritan woman, in that one moment, her whole world, everything that her world was built on, shattered. It was exposed. It came crashing down. And in the same moment, simultaneously, suddenly there's something true that's starting to take form before her very eyes. When she, of all people, becomes the first human to hear from the mouth of Jesus a proclamation of who he truly is, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, she gets up and she goes running back to her town and tells everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. And here's the part that's puzzling about this story. Here's the part that I was really struck with. Everyone in the town follows her. <laughs> Everyone. 
wait a minute, I mean, this, this is a woman who has had five husbands. This is a woman who is living currently with a man who is not her husband. She was not a woman of high reputation. This was a woman of questionable morals, low integrity, a woman not highly esteemed. And yet, when she comes and says, I've found someone who is, is the person we've been waiting for. I've found someone who can make a difference in your life. I've found somebody who was able to look into me and see who I really was. They don't, dis, they, they don't disregard what she's saying. They all come out to see for themselves. Why? Why would this entire town follow this woman of low reputation to see this man that she's talking about? I believe it's because something had changed in her. Something was visibly different. Her countenance changed. Suddenly she's speaking as one with authority, with confidence and conviction. Remember what Jesus said to her. He said, if you knew who was speaking to you right now, you would have asked him for a drink. And he would have given you living water. Jesus said, anyone who drinks from this well will thirst again. But anyone who drinks the water that I give will never thirst again. In fact, it will become in them a well springing up to eternal life. You see, she drank that living water. She had in her that well springing up. And when you have a well of living water springing up in you, it can't help but spill out onto other people. That's the invitation that God gives to each one of us. That's the experience of transformation that God is inviting us into. He's saying you can have a well of living water springing up in you to eternal life. When in Acts 9, Luke records, all those hearing him, Saul, continued to be amazed. The reason is they, they were seeing a genuinely and thoroughly transformed life. A man who had been transformed from one thing into something entirely Different. Saul, who was heartily approving of the stoning of Stephen and had been ravaging the church, dragging off men and women, who asked for letters from the high priest to apprehend any followers of Jesus, becomes Paul, the apostle, who writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Saul, the ambitious zealot, who would do anything to rise in the ranks of the Pharisees, becomes the Apostle Paul, who writes in Philippians, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit or ambition. 
Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Saul, who claimed to be blameless in the law, becomes the Apostle Paul, who later calls himself the chief of all sinners and the greatest recipient of God's grace. Saul, who with a violent and hateful heart makes it his task to risk the world of anyone who would claim that Jesus is the Messiah, becomes the Apostle Paul, who boldly proclaims. He is the image of the invisible God. And there is no other name by which people can be saved. Let me go back as I close to that moment when the scales fell from Paul's eyes. And what was the first thing that he did? It says he arose and was baptized. Now why? Why baptism? It's because baptism is a proclamation and a confirmation of our new identity as followers of Jesus. As soon as those scales fell from Paul's eyes and he recognized God's plan of redemption and who Jesus was, he did not delay. He immediately wanted to proclaim to the world, declare to the world his new identity. I am a follower of this man. I am a follower of Jesus. How do we become a Christian? It's by faith through grace, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God that no one can boast. How do we become a Christian? By faith. How do we declare to the world that we are a Christian and declare that we are on a new path following this Jesus? We declare that through the symbol of baptism. There's another reason that Paul was baptized. It's because baptism is an expression of a transformed life. As we go under the water, it's not only a symbol of the death of our old self, an identification with Christ's death and burial, but it is an identification that our old sinful self, our self-centeredness, our pride, has died and buried, identified with Christ's death. When we raise out of that water, it's a picture of our identification with the resurrection of Jesus. It's a picture of our resurrection to new life in Christ. Paul writes later in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This is what baptism means. Next week, as we gather together for our One Church One Day service at the Crossroads campus, all four of our Christchurch campuses together, worshiping together, we're going to close that service with a baptism service. I want to say two things about that. First, if you have identified yourself as a follower of Jesus. If you have said, like Paul, I recognize who this is. 
This is the promised Messiah who has fulfilled all the prophecy in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. This is the one that was awaited for. Jesus of Nazareth is the savior of the world and I am now a follower of his. If you've said that and you've opened your heart to Jesus, invited him to come in as your savior and you've never been baptized, baptism is the way that we declare that to the world. It is a way of solidifying that decision, confirming it in our heart and in the heart of others. If you've invited Christ into your heart as your savior and you have never been baptized, I want to encourage you, take that step. You can register for it today. Take that step and be baptized with us and celebrate that with your church family. The second thing I want to say about this is this. For those of us who are believers, followers of Jesus, and have been, and have been baptized, may we celebrate with those people who are being baptized, recognizing that each one of them represents a story of deep life transformation. Celebrating the potential for that life to be a carrier of the life of Jesus. Transformed fully from one thing to an entirely different thing. Able to say with the Apostle Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. As we celebrate those baptisms, may we be struck deeply with the stories of transformation that they represent and the opportunity for the carriers and vessels of the life of Jesus that are coming out of that water. Let me close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are stunned along with the Apostle Paul by the amazing beauty of your story of redemption of the world. God, we thank you for entering into our world in human form for the sole purpose of taking upon yourself the sins of the world. We proclaim you as the promised Messiah. We proclaim you as the Christ. We proclaim you as the Savior of the world and we embrace you as our Savior. Lord, we pray for our time next week as we observe these brothers and sisters being baptized. May we greatly celebrate with them as we understand each one of them as a story of transformation and the potential for them to be carriers of your life in this world. But Father, most of all, we pray that that would be true of us. That today we would become to an even greater degree, vessels of your life, your love, your words, your touch, your healing, completely transformed from self, selfish beings to selfless carriers of the life of Jesus. And we ask this in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.